Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, Revelation 19.19 comes to mind as I think about our program today. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Rick, Revelation 19, 19 is at the end of the tribulation period. But yet, as we sit here today, we see the armies and the kings of the earth coming together to make war, which has been Satan's plan from the very beginning. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started with our first Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have our good friend Ken Timmerman with us. He's an author and an analyst and the man who we go to when we want to look at geopolitical affairs, things that are taking place around the world. Ken, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Always my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, Ken, we'll start, I think, where we started last week, talking about Vladimir Putin. He was in the news this week. French President Macron made some statements and essentially caused Putin to warn the West of a nuclear risk. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, and Macron, who I call Little Cookie because of the way his name is pronounced in French, was not the only one. But So this occurred, Rick, on Monday at a uh, meeting of NATO rulers in Paris, and Macron said that NATO could not rule out sending European troops or NATO troops, including American troops, to Kiev, to Ukraine, to fight against Russia. An absolutely stunning statement to make out loud. This is something that uh, NATO has not done. Uh, they, they cannot invoke Article 5. A NATO member has not been attacked. Ukraine does not belong to NATO. And yet he is openly talking about sending NATO troops to fight against Russia. Now, this got Putin pretty upset. And so a couple of days later, on February 29, he gives his state of the state, his state of the union address, and basically threatens global nuclear war should NATO put troops mm. into uh, Ukraine. Pretty extravagant. Now, Putin has made threats like this in the past. It's not new for him to say this. Usually he allows other leaders to make the most extravagant claims, but this time he said it himself personally. I think we need to be very, very cautious about this. And adding fuel to all this, Rick, was the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said also on Monday that Germany would not provide its Taurus long-term cruise missiles to Ukraine because doing so would, quote, require German troops to be sent there to operate them. Now, he was accused of revealing classified information because there are a number of high-tech systems that the Brits have sent, that the United States have sent, and that the French have sent that all require NATO troops. So Macron might have been actually just letting the cat out of the bag. He might have been himself also revealing classified information that we already have NATO troops on the ground as advisors or as operators of these advanced weapons system. This is a very, very dangerous situation. Putin called them out on it. I think the possibility of a rapid escalation here is very real. Well, it certainly does look like that. And even, in fact, less than 24 hours after he made this speech, Vladimir Putin fired a, a missile that was capable of carrying a nuclear warhead. Was that meant to send a message? Oh, you bet it was, Rick. And it was not just any missile. This was the new SS-29 uh, that he fired off. These are missiles that uh, the Russians have designed to defeat any Western anti-missile technology. Uh, it's a hypersonic missile. It flies at 
Mach 25, much faster than any of our Patriot or other ballistic missile interceptors. And this Yaris missile can carry a warhead up to 500 kilotons, 30 times the size of Hiroshima. And he showed us now, Rick, that it is flight ready and ready to be deployed. Certainly a concerning subject that we need to continue to look at. But let's talk a little bit more about Vladimir Putin. There has been reports coming out this week that he is using immigration into Western countries, basically weaponizing immigration into Europe. It's another way he's fighting his battles. Can you talk about this a little bit? Well, Rick, at this point, this is what I would call a leak from intelligence sources, from Western intelligence sources claiming to have access to documents, uh, intelligence documents showing that Russia has established a 15,000-man border police force that will be using former convicts from the Wagner Group to help migrants from Africa and other countries storm into Western Europe and into Great Britain. Now, is it true? I don't know. The documents were classified. They were shown to reporters for the Telegraph in Britain. This could be a disinformation ploy by Western intelligence agencies to gin up anti-Russian sentiment. If the Russians do this, their goal could be to destabilize Western European nations by flooding them with unwanted immigrants and immigrants who are going to really be a drain on their elaborate social support networks. And uh, that is a very real threat. Uh, Britain last year had over 50,000 migrants who stormed across mainly from France in small boats. They don't know what to do with them. Uh, The prime minister is talking about deporting them, but he hasn't done it yet. So this is a sensitive issue. Are the Russians really preparing to do that? We'll have to wait and see. One of the things that Vladimir Putin says he is so concerned about is the expansion of NATO. And that happened again this week. Sweden finally being allowed into NATO, which is a byproduct, allowed America to sell F-16s to Turkey. Can you talk a little bit about both of those subjects? Well, the uh, ascension of Sweden into NATO is not the causes belly that the U.S. support and NATO support of Ukraine has been for Russia. It is not a red line per se. Uh, Finland is a little bit more delicate because the Finns have an 800-mile border with Russia. And the ones that uh, Putin has really been upset about occurred quite some time ago when the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, were brought into NATO. Nevertheless, as part of this deal to bring Sweden in, the United States agreed to sell F-6 to Turkey, a $23 billion deal. And I must say, Turkey is not that popular in the U.S. Senate these days because of its human rights abuses, because of its support for ISIS in the past. Uh, Erdogan is not seen as a very reliable NATO ally. So senators passed this sale, Rick, which had to go through the Senate, really holding their noses and calling it a quid pro quo, if not Turkish extortion. Rand Paul tried to put in a resolution to block it, but his resolution went down 73 to 13. It was defeated. So it was approved. Turkey will get the F-16s despite their uh, unreliable status as a NATO ally. Well, we'll continue on and we'll move to the Middle East a little bit just to talk about what's going on there. Polls opening in Iran. I don't imagine there's going to be any big surprises coming out of this election. Can you talk about the Iranian elections? 
Well, there's two things going on. There's an election for the parliament called the Majlis. The Majlis has become increasingly irrelevant in recent years as the Iranian government selects those who are allowed to run for those seats. So they basically get a rubber stamp parliament. There will be a very low participation rate in this election. Many uh, groups inside Iran are calling for a boycott and there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for the Majlis election. Much more important, though, is what's called the Assembly of Experts. This is a group of 88 primarily mullahs, all 87 of the 88 uh, are mullahs, and they choose the next supreme leader. And that is going to be a real issue. This uh, Assembly of Experts, they sit for an eight-year term, and the supreme leader now uh, is 84 years old. So they fully expect that they will be choosing the next supreme leader. And Khamenei, who is currently the chief Ayatollah, Khamenei has made uh, very certain to pack this assembly of experts with people who think as he do, who are hardliners, who take an anti-Western stance. And the scuttlebutt is that he's trying to groom the current president, Raisi, to become his successor as supreme leader. So that's the one that we really need to watch. I don't expect there to be any surprises here. I think he's going to get an assembly full of hardliners, and they will, again, guarantee his succession with another hardline ayatollah. Well, this, of course, all comes against the backdrop of the fact that Israel and Hamas engaged in a war, Hezbollah threatening Israel. These are both Iranian proxies, and many are saying, and including the Israeli defense minister, that Iran is wanting to turn the upcoming Muslim holiday of Ramadan into a second stage of October 7th. Right. So Ramadan falls uh, on March the 10th, and uh, there are uh, a lot of concerns. Hamas has been calling publicly for Palestinians to turn this into another stage of October 7th. They've been calling for a new intifada. There are fears that they will storm the Temple Mount or or, uh, conduct other violent demonstrations during Ramadan. And uh, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, has been very public about this, warning about this. Uh, I think this is very real. Ramadan has traditionally been used by the Palestinians in particular as a spark for uh, demonstrations, for unrest, for intifada, uh, for uprisings. And I think this year will be no exception. Okay. And for my final question, let's move away from the Middle East and let's talk about China. And there are reports out this week that China is looking to militarize space. We learned this week uh, on Thursday, in fact, when the head of U.S. Space Command was testifying in Congress that the Chinese have been growing their space assets at a, quote, breathtaking pace. Uh, He said they have three times the number of satellites that they had just five years ago. They have now 359 satellites in orbit. I mean, this is extraordinary. He says also they are developing hypersonic weapons just as the Russians are doing that could deny the United States access to space. This is pretty alarming testimony. It was on the record. It was in public. This is a call, not just for Congress, I think for Americans in general to see that China is just growing its space assets and its capabilities of launching uh, rockets into space. Over 100 launches are expected in 2024. They're growing this uh, by leaps and bounds, and we don't even have a space shuttle. And the Chinese are talking about 
landing on the moon. Well, Ken, there are things taking place all over the world that we have to keep an eye on, and you do that for us. We appreciate it. For those that want to find out more about Ken, you can go to kentimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much for doing what you do to be here with us today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always my pleasure. God bless. we got to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dola, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. As the Israel-Hamas war nears the five-month mark, not only does conflict in Gaza continue, but Hezbollah and Israel exchange fire over the northern Israel-Lebanon border. Pastor Israel Pakhtar of Beit Hillel Congregation in the city of Ashdod says their church not only lives out their daily mission as the church with preaching and teaching, but they actively serve neighbors and Jewish immigrants in need. This Christian witness is important amid rising expressions of anti-Semitism around the world. When you live in Israel and you see all the international social media, you got kind of crazy picture and you feel like all the world is against us. So when we help people, we always tell them, this help come from Christians. You know, Christians are with you. They care. They love. Please pray for these faithful believers and join in praying for the peace of Israel and for more gospel workers to share the hope of Christ. Rob Myers with Door International shares that disciples who make disciples who make disciples is a multiplying theme among the deaf around the world. What you'll often see as the outgrowth of this kind of thing is that disciples becoming missionaries into new uh, communities. Door is beginning to strategize what they call outposts, which would be set in major regions of the world where deaf communities are cut off from the gospel. Missionaries there will share the gospel and disciple indigenous leaders. With the hope not just that the gospel would come to those specific deaf communities, but that through them sending missionaries out, that it would flood into the surrounding communities. Please join Door in praying for these bold strategic efforts by the deaf to the deaf and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. You help bring stories of the heroes of the faith and a voice for the voiceless. Consider giving today. Look for the support tab at missionnews.org. I'm Dodd Morris. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. We look at news coming out of the Middle East in general, Israel in particular. To do that, we have our good friend, journalist Dave Dolan with us. Dave, thank you for being with us. You're welcome, Rick. Well, David, the biggest news story coming out of Israel this week was the fact that an aid truck went into Gaza, was stampeded by Palestinians. Now, there are conflicting reports as to what happened next, but we do know that many people died in this incident. Can you let us know what happened? Well, Rick, uh, it was an Israeli-organized aid convoy that had come up. It was the fourth day in a row that the uh, trucks had come up to the north of uh, Gaza from the Karam Shalom crossing and the south of the Gaza Strip, the Israeli crossing there, and uh, they were coming up the coastal highway. The word had gotten around that they were coming. They'd been there, as I said, three days in a row previously, so there were thousands of mostly young Palestinian men uh, along the road, blocking the road and waiting to get this aid. And when uh, the last of the trucks, there were several of them, when the last of the trucks finally got to the site, they were mobbed. Basically, the truck was mobbed. People were jumping up on the hoods and 
pounding on the doors and whatever and, and running over other people. And again, some stampeding began around then, and the truck driver started to reverse and ran over some people. At that point, the Israelis say they did fire some shots, but not at the crowd, but over the crowd, warning shots to try to get people to back away and get out of the way and let the food be distributed properly. It hadn't even begun. So um, that's the Israeli story. The Palestinians say that the Israelis shot dead most of these people, over 100, although reports from the hospitals say that maybe a dozen or so had been shot, not uh, over 100, certainly. And that was a little later. That was after the mob action, the IDF said, when further south, a tank, that an Israeli tank that was there to guard the proceedings, was slowly backing away because uh, people were attacking it. Some of the Palestinians were throwing things at it and whatever, and that's when the fire was opened that did kill some of them. But a tragic incident, a sad incident, no question that the uh, Palestinians, especially in the north, are hungry, uh, don't have enough aid. The U.S. is considering airdropping some aid in, and others have been doing that. But, of course, this goes on as the talks over ceasefire carry on. Whether the incident on Thursday will break those apart or not, we don't know. But uh, as of Friday, there were reports that there were still discussions happening in Cairo and in Paris. Hamas, uh, again, wants 10 prisoners released for every one Israeli hostage released. Uh, but the Israeli government is discussing it, and we may see a ceasefire coming along in the coming days. Certainly, President Biden is pushing for that and others. And then, of course, we would have uh, a better life return for the Palestinian people. And, of course, many of them are Hamas supporters, but many are not. And it's a sad situation for sure. Well, David, ever since October 7th, Israel has been fighting two battles. Not only have they been fighting Hamas, but also the battle of public opinion. And this is the kind of incident that could take place that could really turn the tide of public opinion around the world, something Israel has to be very careful with, isn't it? Well, it is. And there were reports this week, Rick, that the Palestinian Hamas leader in Gaza, Yahya, that he does not want a ceasefire, that he wants the fighting to continue. He's already lost, well, the IDF spokesman said 13,000 of his fighters have died. And by the way, the Hamas claim that over 30,000 have now been uh, killed in the war. They believe the IDF does, that that's exaggerated. It's more like 20,000 and that a majority of those are Hamas fighters, 13,000. The rest are mostly family members or relatives of those fighters or people that were just caught up in other incidents but not deliberately uh, killed by the Israelis. But they know that these sorts of news reports certainly helps the Hamas cause, certainly increases support for them. Uh, we had statements in Germany and France and England, the U.S., other countries, allies of Israel that uh, condemned the incident, and although they didn't blame Israel outright, they all demanded investigations and all of this sort of thing. So the war continuing is actually good in that sense for Hamas, but of course it's not good for the people of the Gaza Strip, and ultimately it won't be good for him because uh, Netanyahu, as he says all the time, they intend to carry on until they eliminate all of the Hamas brigades. They feel there's four still left and get the top senior leaders. David, as you know, Hamas, a Iranian proxy, another Iranian proxy in the north, Hezbollah. 
they have not had the same type of outbreak of war there that is that was in the south and Gaza, but that is still been simmering up there. What's the latest in the north? Well, Rick, we have to remember that Hezbollah leaders echo Hamas's founding charter in saying that their goal, their reason for existing, is to destroy Israel. You know, the Hezbollah doesn't claim that it's there to protect Lebanon. Lebanon has a army. It has an air force. It has foreign aid. It has all those things. They are a militia set up by Iran in 1982, operating in Lebanon. And the same as with Hamas, they subject their own people, many of whom are not even Muslims. In the case of Lebanon, about a third of the people are Maronite Catholics for the most part. Uh, and they subject them to this war uh, because of uh, Iran's goals and Iran's desire to destroy Israel. But yes, there was stepped up military action once again. Every week, Rick, it's becoming more and more of a full war. Israel uh, airplanes uh, struck in Baal Bek. That's a city in the north of the Bekaa Valley. It's a Shiite stronghold up there. It was a scene of very heavy fighting when I was there in the early 80s. That's the furthest they've hit into Lebanon, and there was much other action throughout the week. Of course, they were continuing Hezbollah to fire rockets into Israel. And uh, in fact, there was another huge barrage of over 40 rockets that actually Hamas said its allied Palestinian forces in Sidon in South Lebanon had fired those. But there were several other Hezbollah rounds as well. And the IDF struck once again near Damascus during the week. And uh, Syria said on Friday it had destroyed a home right on the coast, the Syrian coast of Mediterranean, uh, that was housing Iranian officials. So the war is uh, spreading. It's intensifying in the north. Uh, but, of course, the talks to have a peaceful solution to this are also continuing. The U.S. very much involved in pressing that, that Hezbollah would move its forces further north and stop firing upon Israel, etc. But so far, no signs that that's coming about. Well, David, I know that Israel doesn't necessarily need or want an escalation of this war, but could it be possible that Israel wants to go into the north, into Hezbollah, in order to create a security perimeter, a security border for the residents of the north? Well, Rick, as we've discussed a few times, the uh, IDF leaders and the political leaders have all basically said that as Hamas had to be dealt with, we couldn't have this declared enemy whose avowed open name is to destroy us. We couldn't have that along the Gaza border. We can't have it in the north from Hezbollah. So basically, yes, there is growing expectation that there will be a full Israeli operation into Lebanon at some point. The thinking is it will be probably not until late spring or summer give the troops who are in Gaza after that war ends, or at least winds down, time to rest and get ready and further prepare. But it does look like a showdown's coming. And of course, again, if Hezbollah announces, hey, we're no longer fighting Israel, and don't worry, we're at peace now, and we've decided to change course, then there would be no war. But that's not what they're going to do. That's not what Iran is doing. So it continues. Well, David, all these things will soon be taking place against the backdrop of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which begins next week. This is a time that is typically very tense in that area, especially when you go into the area of Jerusalem around the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque area. Can you talk a little bit about Ramadan coming up next week? 
Well, uh, we know that Ramadan is always a time of stepped-up activity, stepped-up devotion, but also stepped-up passions and stepped-up attacks from the uh, more radical Muslims. This has been going on for a long time. But yes, with the full war happening, tensions are already obviously at a fever pitch. And I didn't mention we had another terror attack this week in Samaria. Uh, two Israelis killed, a 16-year-old boy and an older man getting gas, uh, shot dead by two Palestinians. So um, the war continues, but uh, Ismail Haniya, the overall Hamas leader, made a call this week for Muslims everywhere throughout uh, Israel, throughout uh, Judea and Samaria, throughout the whole region, as many as could, come to Jerusalem and go up to the Temple Mount on Ramadan next Saturday, uh, the first day, and uh, protest Israel, this sort of thing. So the fires are already being lit. Probably we will have some trouble. The only good news is that at least this year, Ramadan doesn't coincide with Passover like it did the last two years. So uh, we have that at least as one positive element. So many things taking place in Israel right now. We'll keep an eye on it and report back to you next week. Dave, as always, thank you so much for being with us today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. As you know, Rick, I'm glad to do it. God bless. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, we'll have Winky Madad proclaiming the Gospels Mike Gendron and R.C. Murrow, as well as the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. That's all right ahead, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Why is Iran so strongly against Israel? In a recent conversation with Voice of the Martyrs Canada, Dr. Hermoz Shariat with the Iran Alive says it's spiritual warfare and must be seen and treated as such. A second reason is political. The Iranian government needs an enemy outside Iran to keep in front of its citizens. Iran is one of the hardest places to be a Christian today, but the church is exploding. Please pray for godly courage for believers and learn more at missionnews.org. Did you know before any work begins on a Bible translation, you must first survey the needs of a community? In the full report online, Dan with Door International explains how sign language survey works in deaf communities. Less than 2% of the world's 70 million deaf people know Christ. Please pray the Lord will connect Door with qualified helpers and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. I'm Dot Morris. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Coming up in the next half hour, Israel Madad will go a little bit deeper on the situation in Israel. You won't want to miss this. Mike Gendron, I've had an issue with this app that's out right now. You might have heard about it. It's the Hallow app that's helping you to say prayers. And uh, Mark Wahlberg and the gentleman that plays Jesus and the Chosen series. I wanted to get Mike Gendron on the program to talk about this today. Then we'll have R.C. Merle coming at the end of the program to help us to understand where we are in the BRICS nations and the financial situation in the United States. Well, let's get started, Rick, with Israel Madad. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have a chance to have our good friend on the program, Winky Madad. He's the former mayor of Shiloh, somebody who is in the know politically, historically, Jewish culture-wise. He is somebody that we often have on the program. Winky, thank you for joining us. Again, thank you very much for having me on. 
Well, Winky, I have a variety of things I'd like to talk to you about today. But before we do that, I'd just like to get an update on the war between Israel and Hamas that is taking place in Gaza right now. From your perspective there, as an Israeli citizen living in the area of Judea and Samaria, how do you believe the war is going for Israel? Well, look, we have moved into a sort of advanced stage of the military maneuvers, which presents two problems. Number one, uh, we're almost finished with a uh, southern city called Khan Yunus. However, of course, the more the troops that we had taken out of northern Gaza, specifically in the area of Gaza City and something called the Zaytun neighborhood, we're beginning to see a return of some of the uh, independent elements of Hamas. Uh, that are armed with RPGs and mortars and uh, are causing a bit of a problem uh, in that area. We've had, uh, I understand, just in the past two or three days, we've killed perhaps close to 100 to 150 uh, confirmed Hamas terrorists killed. And the question is, do we move into the uh, Rafiah or the Rafa, depends how you pronounce it, city which lies mm -hmm directly on the border with Egypt in the south? Or do we wait for some more diplomacy and to see if Qatar or Biden or maybe someone else can arrange some sort of a uh, ceasefire which would allow for the hostages to be released? The government does not want the war to end. We're talking about simply a, a short break, maybe two to three weeks that happened uh, in the first phase of the war. Uh, so far, Hamas has not been forthcoming, and uh, we can only guess the reasons why, uh, but that's the situation in Gaza. Well, let me just expound on what you said there just a little bit. You said the government does not want the war to end. I remember when October 7th happened, and I talked to people that I knew in Jerusalem, both Arab and Jewish, and many were saying, oh, yes, it's another situation in Gaza. We've had these before. This is before they realized the true extent of the atrocities that were committed on the, that day. And they said, oh, there'll be some rockets going back and forth. There may be some problems, but things will, will remain status quo. But as I said, nobody realized what actually happened on that day. And the reason Israel doesn't want the war to end is because they can not, not out of a sense of vengeance, but out of a sense of letting others know, mainly organizations like Hezbollah in the north know that they can't do this and continue to survive. This is a almost an existential question for Israel, and that is why they keep on pressing on. That is why they resist the ceasefire, not that they want to kill Palestinians. Is that the way you view the situation there, Winky? Well, again, the point that people should remember is that ever since 2005, when the disengagement was supposed to bring us some sort of a, uh, if not peace, at least uh, uh, non-hostility uh, period, we've had continuous ongoing rocket attacks, sometimes in bursts, sometimes over months. Uh, we've had about five major engagements, if I can call them that, campaigns, uh, large battles, sometimes taking uh, two to three weeks, sometimes taking two to three months. But it's been obvious that they just continue with their missiles and their rockets and their terror tunnels and other aspects of their terror campaign, which means we can't allow this to go on because it'll just get worse. 
uh, if they were able to uh, uh, mobilize uh, 1,500 or so commandos who crossed the border and, and killed and did what they did, uh, we give them another two years and they'll have uh, 3,000 to 5,000 who were able to do that. Uh, we must eliminate as much as possible Hamas capabilities and Hamas terrorists in order to protect a large swath of Israel from the south to Tel Aviv, where some of the um, rockets uh, landed uh, a year and a half ago. Well, let's switch gears a little bit from Gaza. I want to talk to you about a couple of other political situations that are taking place. You had an opinion piece in the Jerusalem Post on Thursday of this past week where you talked about the inconsistencies. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken from the United States reversing decisions that were made by Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State for former President Donald Trump. If you could, could you just let us know the gist of that opinion piece and how you view these inconsistencies when it comes to the area of Judea and Samaria, the area that the media may call the West Bank, but we call it Judea and Samaria, and that's where you live, by the way. All correct, <laughs> and, and I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, many nations and many organizations claim that constructing Jewish residential communities in the area of Judea and Samaria is illegal. President Obama once used the term illegitimate. And I and some other people who are much more uh, learned in international law dispute that claim. You can call it an obstacle to peace if you don't like it. You can claim that it's causing problems. I don't mind arguing about whether it does or not. But the issue of law here is very, very clear. And I think I called it the ping pong uh, of Secretary Blinken reversing the Pompeo decision after he devoted, I think, two years into investigating the legal aspect of it. And he said that Jews living and constructing homes in Judea and Samaria is not against international law. And I showed uh, through an odd case, me being a historical buff, that back in 1946, the State Department refused to allow Jordan, which had become independent, both into the United Nations and delayed its recognition of it until 1949, simply because that area, and we're talking about Transjordan, right? The, 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 what we know today is the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan on the east bank of the Jordan River, right? Was part of the original Palestine mandate, which gave the Jews the right to settle in there. And so if we had the right then, and we, we haven't had any sort of state claim sovereignty over Judea and Samaria since 1948, then we Jews have the right to be here legally. And that's the point I tried to make. Well, for those that would like to read that article, if you go to Jerusalem Post and you look at the opinion pieces, this is from February 29th of this past week, you can see you often contribute to the Jerusalem Post as well as to Prophecy Today, and we appreciate that as well. Well, another subject that I would like to get your thought on, there was a big story in Israel this week, and it basically has to do with the ultra-Orthodox. They are exempt from serving in the military, and that is causing a lot of controversy and potentially a lot of division. Can you talk a little bit about the laws that are trying to be passed, and maybe just speak a little bit to this division that this could potentially be creating in Israel. Well, historically speaking, the ultra-Orthodox 
as a sub-social group are very, what's the word I think it best express it, hesitant or cautious about mingling. They live among themselves and they've built various educational and social institutions and they've grown demographically speaking. And they've always had an exemption from service in one way or another. Uh, they don't get married by a certain age or they continue to study in a, in a yeshiva for a continuing period of time, they will get an exemption similar to exemptions in the United States or other countries that allow uh, religious students to, to be exempted from. But of course, Israel is a small country and most of us are Jewish, 80%. And everybody, it is the feeling, should serve the country in one form or another. Now, one point I'd want to make in all this argumentation among the Jews, everybody conveniently forgets that 20% of the population is non-Jewish, about 17% of that is Arab, and they don't serve either, but no one talks about that. Uh, so it, it's an issue that, uh, that causes people to feel that the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox population, are not carrying their weight. They're not, you know, uh, sharing in the responsibility. And especially since this war, we've lost over 500 soldiers. The people say, you know, someone has to share in all the responsibility here, including life and death decisions and participation. And so it's also a very emotional, besides being a political and economic issue, and uh, it's causing problems because the numbers are, are larger and the fact that we're in war right now, of course, highlights it even more. In your opinion, Winky, how serious is this division? Is this something you say it's causing problems? And I know that Prime Minister Netanyahu is certainly trying to deal with the situation. But is this something that could really divide the country? I would have to say it, it does already divide the country, number one. Even many of... Uh, People like me, who you would call perhaps national religious or modern orthodox, maybe something like that, we see nothing wrong learning in a yeshiva and spending time in the army. In fact, several hundreds of Haredim have volunteered to serve in the army because of this past war. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong, at, at the very least, in every summer having, I don't know, 5,000 to 10,000 Haredi pupils undergo a uh, ROTC camp, if I can call it that for our American listeners, uh, during the summer to get to know how to use a weapon and at least be able to, to help out if anything happens, uh, if not doing full army service. I'm sure some compromise uh, could be worked out. Well, my final question for you, and one of the hotspots of the world and one of the hotspots that we know and we talk about it often on this program, is the Temple Mount. And Hamas has raised the stakes in these Gaza truce talks that they're currently going through right now. And they are calling for a march on what they call the Alaska Mosque, what we call the Temple Mount area, during Ramadan. Now, this is going to be a very contentious time. Can you talk a little bit about the Temple Mount, what we are going to see in the next couple of weeks as we approach Ramadan, and how this is going to be handled by Israel? Well, one of the things that the, the Arab side conveniently forgets to remind people is that the uh, the month of Ramadan has traditionally, unfortunately, been a month 
when terror activities increase and when tens of thousands of Muslim worshipers, many who could be very peaceful, uh, congregate on the Fridays. Usually it's the Fridays at the big days, of course. That's their uh, Sabbath, I guess we could call it, right? And sometimes they riot, sometimes they throw stones. At the very least, they hang up Hamas banners and stuff like that. And, you know, the question is, listen, is this a, a church, a synagogue, or a, a, a mosque, or is it a uh, stadium for political activities? Mm. You can't ask us to treat it as a sacred worship site for anybody, and then act as if you're uh, demonstrating in Times Square or uh, Westminster Abbey or whatever. I don't know what. And and they seem to claim uh, to be immune from any criticism. And they can yell for violence and march on it. And of course, Israel is faced with the problem. Do we restrict ages under 45, under 50? Uh, because usually people who uh, are much younger are more uh, irresponsible, can I call that? And people with families or older people are not going to get or want to be put in jail or something like that. Uh, and then they claim that, you know, their, their rights of worship are restricted when they're doing all the damage to themselves and claiming it's Israel's fault. So I hope this period passes a lot more peaceful than it has in the previous years, and uh, we'll be able to get over it. Oh, we certainly realize that that is a hot spot, something that we keep an eye on. Our listeners, we always exhort them to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and coming up in the next couple of weeks, that's something that we will certainly want to do, and that's certainly something that we will hope for for you. Well, Winky, as always, you keep our listeners informed on these subjects. We appreciate your insight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Rick, thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Great job as always, Winky. You know, Rick, um, you and I have been up on the Temple Mount when we have seen that, so we know, and we're going to cover Ramadan in the future because it's coming up, and we want everyone to know about it. But uh, it's so very important that people understand what's taking place in Israel, isn't it? Well, it certainly is, Jimmy. And sometimes we have a little bit of repetition. You, We know we had Dave Dolan earlier with his Middle East News update. Ken Timmerman even talked about it. And then, of course, Winky talked about it as well. But we cover it from a different angle. Each of those broadcast partners brings a little different something. And this is, of course, so important we're looking at the Temple Mount, the most valuable piece of real estate in all the world for us as Christians, of course, and for the Jewish people as well. So this is something we want to cover and make sure we look at it from all angles. Yes, that is for sure. And I really appreciate the way that you cover it. And it is. Uh, it was like looking at the tree trunk all the way around the tree trunk uh, from different angles. Well, another topic that I have been concerned about, I really have been concerned about because I have had Christian young people ask me about this, Rick, and it's the Hollow app. And it's an app that uh, says prayers with you, whatever you want. You know, last week we talked to Paul Scharf about signs of the end times, and one was spiritual delusion. The Bible warns us that the tribulation and even the days leading up to it will be a time of spiritual delusion. Matthew chapter 24 verses 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 and 9 through 11. We are being challenged like we've never been challenged before as part of the body of Christ. Deception. 
There are lies regarding the true God of Israel and his chosen people. There are lies regarding God's purpose for all of mankind, his plan for all of mankind. So we need to be very careful about what we watch on TV and what we allow into our lives in the, really, if you will, in the, in the guise of religion. And that's why we had to get Mike Gendron with Proclaiming the Gospel with us again today. Mike, welcome to the program. Always a joy and a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Mike, I have a few questions for you today, but before I do, just to provide some context, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your testimony, and what your ministry focuses on? Well, sure. It's an evangelistic ministry because I was lost for 35 years of my life, even though I thought I belonged to the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't until I opened the Bible at age 35 that I realized I was woefully deceived about really life's most critical issue, and that is, how can I become right with God? What must I do to be saved? And so when I had this crisis of faith, I left the Catholic Church and began worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And because of my love and compassion for Catholics, we developed a ministry outreach to equip the body of Christ to share the true gospel with Roman Catholics. Well, we have you on when we look at subjects that concern the Catholic world, and that is part of your ministry there. And as we talk about that, Jimmy and I were talking about this cultural phenomenon that is going on right now. It's a prayer app. It's called Hallow. It is, you can get it on your phone, and it is being heavily pushed, a Super Bowl ad heavily pushed by celebrities such as Mark Wahlberg and Jonathan Rumi, the man who plays Jesus on the very popular show. Series And Jimmy and I just wanted to talk to you about this app, and can you tell us what we need to know about it? Well, sure. It's a very ecumenical app. They are really trying to unite all of Christianity to reverse the Reformation. There's a lot of money behind it, as you've stated. But Catholic prayers often fall on deaf ears, and that's because many of the prayers that are featured on Hollow are prayers to Mary, prayers to guardian angels, and we know from Scripture there's never a God-fearing person that prays to anyone other than God because he's the only one that can hear and answer prayers. The Hello app encourages the rosary, and some of your listeners may not be familiar with the rosary, but that's where Catholics pray 53 repetitious prayers to Mary. There's also an app for prayers for the dead, And, of course, that's based on the false theology of the Roman Catholic Church, that there is an intermediate place between heaven and hell where people go and they die called purgatory. In fact, it's based on the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1030, all who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. And so on the Hallow Prayer app, it says, Why pray for souls? And the answer is given, Our prayers can help to purify the souls of those who are in purgatory. Purgatory is a place of temporary purification where souls go to be cleansed. And so that's very misleading. And then, Rick, it says how to pray for the dead. And the answer is we can offer any specific prayer for our loved ones, including the rosary, 
or novenas, or especially the Holy Mass. And then they even use a Bible verse to help pray for the dead. And I know because of your prophecy listeners, they'll really get a kick out of this. They, the Bible verse that they use is, For the Lord himself, with the word of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Of course, that's based on the rapture in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. But the Roman Catholic Church rejects the rapture because the souls in purgatory cannot be raptured instantaneously. They have to be purified first, and they have different amounts of time in order to purify themselves before they can make it into heaven. So that's just a, kind of a summary, but I, I guess another one we should probably talk about is they encourage prayers to guardian angels. And um, mm. one of the uh, apps on the hollow prayer app is to pray for your guardian angels, intercession, protection, and guidance. And they even give a sample prayer that we can pray to our guardian angel. It goes like this, Angel of God, my guardian, dear, to whom God's love commands me here, ever this day be at my side to light and guard, rule and guide. And they also have prayers to Our Lady of Lords. But I, I guess something we need to talk about, you mentioned that there's a lot of highly visible actors from Hollywood that are jumping on this hollow prayer app. One of them has received a lot of backlash, and it's uh, Liam Neeson. He um, obviously is a very popular Hollywood actor, but in a video promoting the Advent prayers, Neeson is seen speaking with actor Jonathan Rumi, the one who plays Christ in the controversial series The Chosen. Neeson told Rumi that he is really excited to join Hallow and would be going through meditations largely from C.S. Lewis. But Hollow users were quick to point out that Neeson's vocal support for abortion, the legalized preborn child killing, has caused a backlash because one of the good things about the Roman Catholic Church, it's pro-life, it's against abortion. So there's been a, a heavy backlash against using Neeson to promote the prayer app. Well, Mike, as we look at this situation, and you mentioned earlier, this is a very ecumenical movement. It is very broad-based. It uh, it looks to bring in all kinds of people under a big tent and use celebrities and, and, and different things like that. And, and it certainly moves away from doctrine, even the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And this is something that is led by the current Pope. This is a direction that the world is moving in, and this is a direction that the Catholic Church is moving into, isn't it? Well, it really is. Uh, the Pope's goal is a very aggressive agenda to unite all of Christianity under the power and influence of the papacy. He is seeking to reverse the Reformation, but Catholics and evangelicals both need to be warned that he has the spirit of Antichrist. And, and I'm not saying this to upset Roman Catholics, but when Jesus was on this earth, he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven because he came to save people from the burning fires of hell. But yet just last week, Pope Francis denied that hell is a place. Instead, he says it's a posture towards life. 
And I say he has the spirit of Antichrist because his statement goes directly against the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody needs to be warned that this is a false prophet, probably the most influential false prophet in the world today. Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries. I urge you to go to his website at proclaimingthegospel.org to learn more about his ministry. But Mike, this is something that you help keep us up to date on as we look at all of these things that are taking place around us today, things that are in our face, ads, and we're seeing these things all the time. These things are coming to fruition right before our eyes. Mike, we appreciate what you do to help keep our listeners involved and informed, and we also appreciate what you do in your ministry as well. Thank you so much for coming on today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. Mike Gendron with ProclaimingTheGospel.org. The deception spoken of in the Gospels has to do with false prophets and or messiahs who appear and seem to be authenticated by miracles. Taking the futuristic position, we see the great deception spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as a future event associated with the coming of the Antichrist after the rapture of the church. Those who are perishing will willingly embrace the imitation and follow the beast of the end times, and they will perish because they've refused to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 10 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet will use signs, wonders, and miracles. Revelation chapter 13. We don't know exactly what the great deception will be, only that it will be a strong delusion capable of swaying the world's allegiance toward the Antichrist. There are plenty of false teachers today who claim to teach God's word. It is vitally important that every Christian compare every teaching with what the Bible says and spend the time necessary to evaluate what is being taught. And we would encourage every person to compare what we say with Scripture as well. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the book of Ezekiel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, we have a website, and we dearly want people to go to the website. Jimmy, we have been so encouraged about people finding out about our ministry, going to our website, finding out what we do, following our programs, and looking at our bookstore. All of these things are ways that you can get involved with our ministry at prophecytoday.com. Yes, prophecytoday.com. Thanks, Rick. And Rick, one of the things that they can find on that is Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, who all of his teaching, his audio series, which we like to feature on our program as we honor him. And today, Rick, on our broadcast, we want to continue our study of God's plan through the ages with a focus on the book of Ezekiel. We are looking at God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and the part that they will play in God's overall plan. The fact is, the Jewish people are key to God's plan. We looked at the ancient Jewish prophet Ezekiel last week and his call to be a prophet. A unique man, obviously, and a unique message. We'll see how unique he really is in our study today. We'll start Ezekiel chapter 4, and we'll look at Ezekiel the prophet. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. If you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth, or truth of 
what's the judgment to come going to be? And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. He tells him to lay in the street. I said he's going to be a street preacher. He literally tells him to lay in the street. In chapter 4, that's what he tells him. Look at verse 5. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so shall thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And then thou shalt have, have accomplished them. Lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity for the house of Judah 40 days. 390 days he lays on his left side in the middle of the street. 40 days on his right side. 430 days he's laying in the street. Now what kind of a prophet is this? He has no capability of speaking unless the Lord loosens his tongue. He's laying in the middle of the street for 430 days. And then the Lord says something really unique to him. He says, now I know you're going to probably get hungry, hungry, Ezekiel. He said, I'm going to give you a little bit of meat. I'm going to give you a little bit of water. And I'm going to give you ingredients to prepare your bread. Look at here. Here's what he says. Verse 9. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and finches and put them into one vessel and make thee bread. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. Look here what he says in verse 10. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be of the weight about 20 shekels a day. That's about 8 ounces of meat. Verse 11. And thou shalt drink also water by the measure of six part of a hen. And that's about a quarter of water a day. Now here it is. He's got a little bit of meat, 8 ounces. He's got a little bit of water, a quart of water. He gives him the ingredients for bread. But let me tell you what he's going to do. He's going to tell Ezekiel to take a bowel movement in public and take the human excrement and put it together and bake his bread. You think I'm making that up? Look at verse 12. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. That's what I said. He's going to tell Ezekiel to take a bowel movement in their sight, in public. Take the human excrement, put it together, light it, and bake your bread. That's somewhat of a prophet, isn't it? Street preacher. He's doing something. He's getting the attention of the people. What's interesting to me, the Lord then remembers, hey, wait a minute, Deuteronomy. I gave Moses Deuteronomy, and I made the statement of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's not kosher to take a bowel movement in public. And so he changes what he wants Ezekiel to do. He says, Ezekiel, you don't have to take the bowel movement in public. You don't have to use human excrement to bake your bread. You can use cow dung. Look here in verse 15. Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. I'm sure Ezekiel must have said, Hey, thanks a lot, God. That's a lot better. I much rather smell cow's dung than the other, you know. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be vulgar. I'm showing you God told Ezekiel to be a prophet unto his people. And God is going to use this man in a unique way. In chapter 5, you know what he tells him? Cut the hair off your head. Cut the hair off your face. Put it in three piles, the hair in three piles. Pick up your sword. Stab one pile. Somehow light one pile and let it burn. And then the other pile, take it and throw it in the air. He's telling Ezekiel what he's going to do. You can read chapter 5 as well as I can. I don't have to read it for you. But let me tell you what that's talking about. Ezekiel is getting a message of retribution retribution against the Jewish people. And God is telling Ezekiel, when I let the Babylonians come into Jerusalem, they're going to burn the city down. And one third of all the Jews are going to burn to death. Those that try to escape, my military will use the sword and kill them. One third of them. And then the other third that's left, we're going to take them into the Babylonian captivity. 
God is using Ezekiel. Without going to the 24th chapter, I can tell you what happens over there. In the 24th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the pride of Ezekiel's life, his wife, dies the next morning. God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die tomorrow morning. Don't you dare get up and mourn. You see, in a Jewish family, when somebody dies, they mourn for a seven-day period of time. It's called pronouncing Sheva. Sheva is seven in Hebrew. And for seven days, they mourn the death of their loved one. God says to Ezekiel, don't you dare pronounce Sheva. Don't you mourn. Get up, put your clothes on, fix your hair, get ready, and go do a prophet's work. Isn't that interesting? Makes him a watchman. Tells him to say what he gives him to say and warn the people. The people are going to mock him. Don't let it bother you. I'm going to make your head harder than theirs. And lay on the ground on your left side for 390 days, on your right side for 40 days. 430 days you'll lay in the street. And I'm not going to make you bake your bread over human excrement that you did in public. I'm going to let you use cow manure to bake your bread. But I'm going to use you as a prophet. Do you know why Ezekiel did all of those things without hesitation? Go back to chapter 1 just for a second. Now, I'm not going to explain chapter 1 except to say this much. God used a throne chariot. It's four cherubim, and they're described here. Four cherubim. There's three types of angels. Actually, four types. The archangels would be a type. But there are seraphim, Isaiah 6, cherubim, Ezekiel 1, throne room angels, Revelation 4, and then Gabriel and Michael, the archangels. Those are the types of angels. Here in chapter 1, he uses four cherubim. They're described with four faces and four wings. They form a throne. They form a throne chariot. Look over here in verse 26 of chapter 1. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. And he allows the throne, this throne chariot to come out of the heavenlies down to the earth. Verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, it was a part of this throne chariot. So was the appearance of the brightness round about who was in this throne chariot. This was the appearance of the likeness, look at here, of the glory of the Lord. You know why Ezekiel did everything that God told him to do, which seemed ridiculous? Take a bowel movement, make your bread over it, lay in the street for 430 days, don't mourn when your wife dies, cut your hair off and stab it, burn it, or throw it in the air. You know why he did it? Listen, he saw the glory of the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe we're not obedient because we have never seen the glory of the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute, Dr. DeYoung. You believe in visions? No, I don't believe in visions. I don't believe that Jesus is making any appearance now. But we can still see the glory of the Lord. Do you not remember Psalm 19, verse 1? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and his handiwork declare the glory of the Lord. We can see the glory of the Lord. When's the last time you just went out and looked up in the heavens? Do you know what happened on the fourth day of creation, Genesis 1? You know what happened on the fourth day? The first part of the day, Jesus, who was the creator, put the sun up in the sky. And then he put the moon up in the sky. And it's almost as if he was finished with his work that day. And he starts to walk away and he says, oh, and the stars also. Four words, and the stars also. Do you understand what's up there in the heavens? Einstein said, Einstein said, in our galaxy alone, 
There are 12 octillion stars. You know how many stars that is? Well, I don't know how to explain it, except it's a one with 98 zeros behind it. That's one octillion. There's 12 octillion stars in our galaxy. And do you know what they tell me? The astronomers tell me there are one billion, that's a B, one billion galaxies out there. And Jesus said, and the stars also. <laughs> I love it. And the stars also. And all we need to do to see the glory of the Lord is simply look up in the heavens. And his handiwork, his handiwork. One of my favorite characters is the woodpecker. The, you know, and there's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the scientists today are going to be willfully ignorant of God creating everything. I don't like that interpretation of the Word of God. It's King James, but, and I use King James, but I don't like that interpretation, willfully ignorant. I think there's a better interpretation. It's mine. Here it is. Those scientists are going to be dumb on purpose. How about that? Is that better? Dumb on purpose. The woodpecker. They try to say the woodpecker evolved. Have you ever thought about the woodpecker? The woodpecker is one of the most unique birds in all the world. How could a blue jay evolve into a woodpecker? There's no way. Let me tell you what happens. If a blue jay was trying to be a woodpecker, the, the blue jay would fly up to a tree and the blue jay would put his claws into the tree. You see, his claws face up like this. And when he took his beak and tried to peck against the tree, two things would happen. First of all, his beak would go right through his brain and he'd fall off the tree because he's only holding on like this. Now, a woodpecker, look how I invert my hand. The woodpecker has his claws facing downward. And when he lands on the tree, he puts them into the tree. He's got a very strong tail that he puts, and he's in a tripod. And when he takes his beak, he pecks against the tree, and the membrane behind his, the back of his head is so solid that the beak can't go through the membrane to get to his brain. So he pecks against the tree. And so he's not going to fall off the tree. He's trying to drill a hole into the tree to find a worm. By the way, do you know what? with what force of power he hits that? He pecks against that tree 15 times every second. You want to know what kind of force that is? After this is over, go outside, find you a tree standing out there, get back about 40 feet, start running as fast as you can, and run smack into the tree. That's the force with which a woodpecker takes his beak and pecks against the tree. Oh, by the way, if a blue jay tried to peck into a tree, if he could ever get in there, you know how the, you have to try to get the worm, you dig a hole into the tree? Well, he takes his little tongue, he can't go very far with that small little beak that he has, and so he takes his tongue and he, he tries to stick it in there and grab the worm. The, the blue jay has a tongue about that long. The woodpecker has a tongue about this long. It's wrapped around his head, it has a hook on the end of it, and has a special gluish substance on the end of it and he sticks his tongue into that tree, grabs that worm, the gluish substance, adheses uh, the worm to the tongue, he pulls it out and has a wonderful meal. Can you imagine a blue jay trying to do that? You know, what I said, they are dumb on purpose. And that's exactly what is unfolding in the whole evolutionary world, exactly what is taking place. Well, why did I give you that illustration? That's the glory of the Lord. Have you, you know what our problem is? We don't stop to smell the roses. That's out there. And that's what Ezekiel saw, the glory of the Lord. Now, that's how he was able to be the prophet who would give a message of retribution, a message of judgment. That's chapters 1 to 32.
the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel have been a message of retribution, judgment on the Jewish people and on the neighbors of the Jewish people. God used Ezekiel, a unique man with a unique message, to give these prophecies. Next week, we'll look at the last 16 chapters of Ezekiel and see how the prophet has a message of restoration. These will be the prophecies of the restoration of the Jewish people to their land, the land of their forefathers, and what happens as these prophecies begin to be fulfilled. It will be a very interesting study, and it will help us to understand the current events of our day. Please join us next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Let me remind you on our website at our bookstore, there are three books that you can get. Commentaries on Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. We would love for you to get those, and we're making those very inexpensive for people to be able to study God's Word. Got to take a break, and when we come back, I'm talking to R.C. Merle about our financial situation in the United States, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Two key mission leaders remain in critical condition following a tragic bus accident that claimed the lives of 11 youth with a mission or YWAM workers in Tanzania. We turn now to MNN's Ruth Kramer for details. Participants in a YWAM leadership course took a field trip to Maasailand on Saturday, where they observed a thriving community development program. On the return trip, a truck that lost its brakes smashed into YWAM's second bus, crushing it from top to bottom. Please. Pray that the believers in critical condition will stabilize. They need to be moved to a different hospital with better care. Pray their transportation goes smoothly without any complications. Even after insurance, YWAM needs about $350,000 to cover the anticipated costs. Look for a link in the full story online if you prayerfully feel led to give. I'm Ruth Kramer, Mission Network News. And a recent trip to Madagascar brought Wycliffe USA leaders face-to-face with church leaders doing Bible translation Wycliffe USA's Andrew Fleming says most of the languages in Madagascar have no scripture. Madagascar has about 23 different languages or or language variants. Wycliffe's mission is actually to see God's Word translated into every language of need. The local church started translation work in four minority languages. Now Wycliffe USA is coming alongside to provide the technical support needed to complete and publish the New Testament in these four languages. Right now is a pretty exciting time. Wycliffe USA is engaging in more uh, Bible translation projects than we ever have before. Your prayers and gifts can help pave the way for all people in Madagascar to access the life-giving words of Scripture. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. You can join us here and on social media. Look for the links at missionnews.org. For Ruth Kramer, I'm Dodd Morris. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, uh, as I am watching world news, and we do understand that Satan is working behind the scene to gather world leaders to make decisions to go against God's plan. We know that behind the scenes, this is what is taking place. I also saw something else that sparked my interest this week, and one of our faithful 
broadcast partners got a hold of me and said we needed to do something on this. So, uh, R.C. Murrow, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back with you, Jimmy. Yes, sir. Well, R.C., as we were watching world events, a report this week that 30 more countries are applying to become members of the BRICS alliance, joining Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, and Iran. What can you tell us about this latest expansion? Jimmy, the report says that the developing countries have more trust in the BRICS alliance than in the U.S. dollar and want to distance themselves from it. A principal reason is the $34 trillion in U.S. debt that has become a burden. Now, there are three more additional reasons why third world countries are heavily affected by growing debt. It limits access to financing, it raises borrowing costs, and it causes currency devaluations that can cripple third world economies. Since 2008 and 9, the Federal Reserve has printed, now this is by my count, $10.2 trillion, which includes $4 trillion during the 2008-9 financial crisis and $6.2 trillion in the 2020 COVID crisis. That does not count Federal Reserve maneuvers with harmless-sounding names like repos, reverse repos, twists, reverse twists that have added, probably added several trillion to the debt. In fact, yesterday, as the markets closed, the Fed hinted that more money printing could be on the way. What that debt and money printing has done is to debase the U.S. dollar, causing inflation. And even more importantly, it weakens the world's confidence in the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency. Remember this. Nations have to hold lots of dollars for international trade. And, Jimmy, if the dollar were to continue to weaken, the third world economies that are teetering economically as they are would go first and the rest of the world could follow. Just a quick side note. What do you think is leading this, R.C.? Well, we don't know uh, at this point and why they would be uh, cranking up the money printing press again. Uh, we've got several theories on that. They're either what it looks like is they're either playing politics with an election coming or possibly the, the world economy and the, specifically the United States economy is a lot weaker than they've been letting on. Yeah, interesting. A second article you posted this week, why digital currencies are unnecessary and dangerous about how global citizens are failing to grasp the dangers, CBDCs. Let's talk about that. Yeah, in, in that article that I posted, uh, Spanish economist Daniel Lacal outlines the dangers of a digital economic system, and he really calls it like it is, surveillance masquerading as money. Lacal says central banks will have precise information on how people use money, including borrowing and spending, that central banks could impose penalties on individuals who spend in a manner they consider unsuitable and reward those who follow their recommendations. So, R.C., we've talked about this in the past. When you look at this, they're going to be monitoring and, you know, deciding that what we spend our money on really determines how they deal with us. That's absolutely correct, Jimmy. How we how we donate to churches or to political groups or or anything else is going to raise all kinds of issues of privacy uh, that we have never had before with paper money. Mm. So, RC, I always ask you, what is the possible outcome as far as Bible prophecy is concerned? In, in a word, Jimmy, hyperinflation, which ha which happened in World War II Germany. Post-World War II Germany, it happened in Hungary in 1946, it happened in Venezuela in 2016, and more recently it is happening in Argentina. The Bible tells us that prophecies cast a shadow before them. 
You know, if we look back at the 2008-9 financial crisis again, we find a shadow of things to come because hyperinflation almost happened on a global scale then. In that crisis, the global economy was flooded with toxic U.S. government mortgage bonds that threatened to bring down many of the world's largest banks. If not for the $4 trillion bailout by the U.S. Federal Reserve, previously unheard of amount of money, by the way, the global economy was in danger of slipping into hyperinflation. And while global hyperinflation has never happened in history, Bible prophecy tells us that it's exactly what will happen early in the seven-year tribulation period. And here's how it could happen on a purely secular level. If the central bank makes another series of mistakes like they did in 2020, when they called inflation transitory and neglected to raise interest rates until May of 2022 and then raised them too fast, causing several large regional banks to fail, another mistake like that could make inflation rocket higher Mm. again. On a biblical level, there are three major monetary events that are prophesied to take place during the seven-year tribulation period under the government of Antichrist. Revelation 6, 5, and 6, the black horse brings global hyperinflation. In Revelation 13, 16, and 17, the false prophet brings the mark of loyalty for all economic transactions. In Revelation 18, 11, after seven years, the economic system of Antichrist will collapse when the merchants weep and mourn because no one will buy their merchandise anymore. Our Bible study, The 1% of Revelation, Do Not Harm the Oil and Wine, is posted on prophecytracker.org under Bible studies. Wow. R.C., that's unbelievable. Thank you for not only bringing current events to us and telling us about it, but tying it and relating it to future prophetic events that are going to take place. Give us your website one more time. It is prophecytracker.org, Jimmy. And you have that Bible study, the 1% and Revelation do not harm the oil and wine. And people always ask me what that means. R.C., as we're doing our program, as you're doing your website, you're keeping up. Does it look like the rapture of the church is far away. You know, I, I, I sometimes marvel as to how we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. That's why we do this program, so that we can even keep so. the body of Christ alert. Even so, yeah. come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, my dad used to say. R.C., yes. thank you so much. Looking forward to being with you again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. R.C. Murrow with prophecytracker.org. As we wrap up the program today, Rick and I have chosen stories according to our understanding of Bible prophecy, how we understand things are going to play out in the end times. Folks, everything that we have seen today, you know that our world is quickly spiraling out of control. The rapture of the church cannot be far away. Until it does happen, let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.